Wow, another episode of Creation Grounds. I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd, and I'm just super excited, super thrilled, super just grateful for this next guest, and I'll get into why in a minute. I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd, and this is the Creation Grounds. I want to encourage you to like, subscribe, share, let people know about it that you think might benefit from it, who might be entertained by it. When I first started this podcast, I had no idea what I was doing. I was learning by trial and error. I was nervous. I didn't know anything about podcasting, interviewing people, but it's something that I just wanted to do and to stay encouraged to do that. I wrote a list of just dream people, dream people who I didn't even think I'd ever be able to interview um, just to encourage me to say, yeah, just keep on, keep on interviewing people, keep on um, being creative, keep on doing podcasts. And our next guest, Stephen Adley Gerges, is somebody who was on that list four, five years ago, four years. I started this podcast in three years. Um, and no, 2016, that's four years. 2016 I started. So on that list, four years ago. He's one of my favorite playwrights. I have a couple and I'm just super excited that he's, he's on. And what he's talking about is even, it's, it's super valuable. I think that um, there's a lot of people who um, can benefit from this episode based on what he's talking about. Now let's get into Steven. If you don't know him already, he's he's a fantastic writer. I love his work. He's um, somebody who's been with Labyrinth Theater Company in New York City since the origins of that. He's um, written tons of great work that I, again, I personally love and that I think he will too. He's written for Broadway. He's written, written for The Get Down on Netflix. He has tons of writing credits. Great plays such as The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Most recently, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven. Um, in Arabia, we'd all be kings and hit, to me, hit after hit after hit after hit. Um, so in this episode, we talk about his writing process. When he's facing a, a, a blank page, what is it to, to start to, to make that happen? What does he do to get through writer's block? What are the challenges of writing? What are the uh, the joys of writing? What what um, he talks about what the differences between writing for the theater and the stage are from writing for TV. And if you're a writer listening and you want to do both, what how to prepare emotionally and and, and uh, mentally for those those differences in those two different mediums. He talks about directors and what the ideal trait of a director who is directing his work, um, what he would want for that in in an ideal situation. And to actors, he speaks on tangible and intangible qualities. So if you're an actor who doesn't feel like you have that God-given gift of that talent, that intangible quality that that actors have, what can can you, one, develop that intangible quality and, and two, is it something to aspire to? And if you're an actor who does feel like you have that intangible God-given gift, um, great, you have that. But what are some tangible things that you can do to further improve? The work never stops. Um, we talk about his latest work, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, and the genesis of that project. And I've already talked too long, so I just want to get to the show. Um, enjoy this episode, episode 37 with Stephen Abney-Gerdes. Super, super excited to welcome our next guest, Stephen Adley Gerges. What's up, brother? What's up, man? You said my name right. That's a, that's a rare occurrence. Is it? Is it? How, yeah. do, how do people usually say it? Stephen Adley Gerges. <laughs> <laughs> they can get through the first two parts and the third part. 
falls apart. But yeah, it's hearing it signals. Awesome. So what question do you wish interviews started with that they never really do? Because you've been interviewed a couple times, you've watched interviews. What kind of question do you wish interviews started with? Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I wish that the, the interviewer would just ask a question that they really want to ask. And, uh, and, I, and, 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 and I would always try to answer that as honestly as I could. Awesome. So what are you listening to nowadays? What are your top three Spotify, Pandora, playlist rotation right now? What are you listening to? Well, first of all, I'm an old man, so I don't have no Spotify. <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and I, I usually listen to music all the time, but I've been playing guitar during this time and actually not listening to a lot of music. I've been, I've been playing a lot of guitar, and what I'll do is if I'm like, watching something and watching a movie and a song comes on, I'll be like, oh, wonder how you play that. And then I'll type in, you know, blah, 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 chords and start playing it. But I love everything, you know. I mean, uh, I grew up listening to, like, pop music on WABC radio, rock and roll, and then punk, and then hip-hop, and jazz, blues. I listen to everything. But lately I've just been playing, and it's it's been uh, satisfying. It's cool. I find it's cool to do something that is... That doesn't necessarily come easy to me, and uh, and and so it's it's kind of fun to practice and struggle. Um, it's joyful. How long have you been playing the guitar? Is that something you picked up recently, or well, you... when I was a teenager, I played, but I never took it seriously enough. And then a few years ago, I realized like I needed a healthy habit. Mm -hmm. You know, so I picked up the guitar. And uh, I liked it. My friend took me to his friend's guitar store, and um, I started playing guitars and then buying a few guitars. I have way more guitar. If you if you came to my house, you would think like, "Oh, are you a professional guitarist?" I'm like, "No, I got too many guitars now." But uh, but it's it's very uh, it's like a form of meditation. Also, that's why I enjoy it. That's dope. So. In your childhood, what's your favorite memory of a play, movie, or piece of music, maybe guitar, that you have, or a piece wow. of art that, that really moved you, that you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, how, 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 how far back, like, how far back you want to go? Like, like uh, a little kid, or a... Or, I guess, what, what, what would you say would be, like, a defining, or a piece of art that you will just always remember. It's the first thing that came to your mind. Like when you saw it, you said, wow, that's, that's art. And it kind of influenced you or, or reinforced you wanting to be, make and be an artist yourself. Well, for some reason, I think when I was 14, my family went to England to visit, um, my Egyptian side. Some of them live in England and my mom took us all to a play and we saw all my sons by Arthur Miller. And um, it just blew me away. And I heard afterwards, like my mom said, like the accents weren't very good, blah, blah, but it blew me away. And I was so caught up in the drama and um, it made a big impression on me. That's dope. What would you say led up to the moment of you deciding the right plays? Well, I started as an actor, still an actor, and it's always what I love to do most, but... When I joined my theater company, which is Labyrinth Theater Company, uh, it started as a gym for actors. And then when we decided to start producing theater on our own, um, 
someone asked me to write a play. We did an evening of one acts, and so I wrote a little one act, and I guess it went really well. Like people laughed when it was funny and got quiet when it was serious and fought at the end. And, and so basically, all my friends kind of ganged up on me and forced me to keep writing, and uh, and that's how I became a playwright because I I was writing plays for my company, so we'd have something to do, you know. Um, and then somewhere along the way, after a few years, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman joined the company, and he acted in the play that I was in. And when he did the play, that's when we sort of became friends, and and I think we both felt that we had some type of a simpatico. And so when I wrote my next play, they asked who I wanted to direct the play, and I said, Phil. And he said, but I never directed before. And I said, yeah, but I never wrote before, like, two years ago. And I felt things went to another level when I started working with Phil because I felt that I was working with someone that no matter what I wrote, he'd be able, he'd be able to understand it emotionally and intellectually and then be able to communicate that to actors in a way that, like, not just gave them understanding but, like, inspired them to, you know, live it out fully. Um, and that's when I started to feel like I could take more risks with my writing. In the beginning, I just kind of wrote more comedies, mm. you know, that I felt like, you know, if the audience wasn't laughing every 30 seconds, that there's something wrong. And um, I, it's a play called In Arabia, We'd All Be Kings. That was the first play that I directed. And that was the first time I was really said, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let it all hang out. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about how I feel and I'm gonna put it in the mouths of characters that um, that I care about and um, and cast actors that I love and we love and that kind of started the ball rolling. That's awesome. Well I'm certainly and I'm sure millions of others are grateful that your friends pushed you to to start writing plays because you you write some really dope stuff so um what what would you say is the most challenging part of writing the whole thing i mean starting starting is the worst and then once you start sticking with it it's horrible <laughs> um and then there's never enough time before like you're in rehearsal during previews I have a really hard time writing, but I'm aware that for whatever reason, I have some aptitude or I receive some type of a gift to do it, and I didn't really do anything to earn it, so I feel like I have an obligation, as long as I'm able to write, to, to write, you know, and to write, hopefully to the best of my ability, and to write things that mean something to me that hopefully means something to other people but it's yeah it's hard but like it's hard but it's not impossible like I always tell folks if you sit down and you stay down something will happen and then you just gotta keep you just gotta keep going do you do you have your like character when you when you're sitting down it's just a blank screen do you have like a theme or like the uh the super objective of these these characters or theme or do you know the characters prior or is it kind of usually every once in a while I have an idea for a play and be like well oh, I think I want to try to write this mm-hmm. um, but more often than not I start from how I'm feeling what I'm feeling like 
like uh, what's going on inside me that is keeping me up at night that makes me feel bad or feel uncomfortable or the kind of stuff that like, you know, I feel like maybe I can't share with other people. Um, that feeling will start to overtake me and then I'll try to put that on a page with characters. So the first line of the play might be directly something that I'm feeling and I'll just write it out and then I'll wait for a response and there a response. And then, you know, if you're fortunate, the characters start talking to each other and you write it down and you write it down and you go as long as you can and then you see what's there. And you're like, okay, is this something? You know, or like the characters start talking and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, well, you know, you're going to have to check with uh, Nancy first. And I'm like, who's Nancy? You know, and right. then like, you get an idea, oh, let's put in Nancy. And, you, and it builds from there. Um, that's, that's often the way I do it. Uh, sometimes I have an idea, like I wrote this play, Last Case of Judas Iscariot. I love that play, man. I was in that play. <laughs> I played, oh, thank you. Play? I played Judas and Jesus on alternating nights. Um, oh, wow. That's such a great way to do it. Yeah. That is, a, we should have did that. We should have done that. Man, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell, a, I don't know if you know John Ortiz, but he, he was the artistic director of Lab, and he played Jesus, and Sam Rockwell played Judas. Man, that's a, that was a good idea. You guys, yeah. But in that instance, you know, they, Lab asked me, okay, what are you writing next? We have like a summer retreat. We go away and workshop the material. And I just blurted out the title. Last Days of Judas and Gary. And they're like, okay. And then I was like, and then I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, this is a good idea. Like, no one's ever written about Judas. Then I Googled Judas. Of course, all the great minds, <laughs> people, you know, lay on the guy. And, um, and, and uh, so I just started doing research. But the idea for the play was I grew up Catholic. I grew up as like a good kid. I bought into everything. And then around, I don't know, second or third grade, they told the story of Judas and how, you know, he betrayed Jesus and then he hung himself. And then because he committed suicide, he's in hell. And I didn't understand it. I was just a little kid. But I was like, yeah, but if I could understand why Judas may be fucked up, why can't God? And it kind of disconnected me from God. And I kind of faked it. You know, through eighth grade, and uh, and uh, and then I didn't really have a connection to the spirit, really, unless I was in trouble. You know, right. God help me. And then I started to get to the age where I I needed some I needed some sense of something beyond me, um, and that exploration came into my plays. I think starting with. Jesus up the A train, and then by the time I got to Judas, I was like, all right, let me start at the beginning. This is where I first went in the other direction. So let me go back and look at this story. And um, and that's, you know, that's what I did. It was trial and error. But, uh, the scene that really kind of, um, for me performing it, the scene that really like was an aha moment, something that I hadn't even considered, was that scene when Judas was a kid. Because to me, that, that humanized him in a way. Because we don't, or I don't, I didn't think of him as as anything other than what church, you know, 
describes him as, but him as a kid having innocences and, and all these kind of stuff. But anyway, I'm getting off. I could talk to you for days about the project. But um, what do you enjoy most about writing? What do you enjoy most about that process? It's over. <laughs> Look, I mean, there are moments when you're in the flow and you're sort of transported, um, and that is that's uh, like without sounding like an asshole, like it's just sort of a transportive or spiritual feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in the flow, same like acting. I'm sure you've had that experience where you're just in the moment, you're in the groove, and it's like. It's like it's you, but it's not you, you know? You're in flow. Um, you know, that, that feeling is is good. Um, seeing the play, but it's ready, and seeing how it affects people, that's cool. But a lot of the process for me is not enjoyable, but that's because I'm, I'm not very disciplined. I don't do things the right way, and, uh, I, I, you know... So it's a struggle to get out. It's a struggle to get it out of me. Um, but I'm not complaining. You know, it's not, you know, I used to be a bike messenger. I used to, like, unload sheetrock. Like, it's not that kind of work. Right. It's a privilege, you know. It's a privilege. Um, I'm very privileged to be able to, since 2000, make my living just as a worker in the arts. But it is hard. It's hard. For writers, um, so you, I think you kind of touched on this already in terms of, but describe a moment in your writing when you were stuck or didn't know how to proceed or during those moments where you might have been undisciplined and just like, I don't feel like doing this right now. How did you get through that and overcome that for a writer? And, and this, the, I guess the the obvious answer would just be to write, but do you have any, any for, for writers who yeah. who are facing like writer's block or anything like that and who really respect and look up to you, what, what are some of the things you do to get unstuck? Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of things I can say. First of all, there's a book called The War of, the War of Art. Mm-hmm. You heard this book? Yeah. It's really good. Um, there's a guy in my company um, named Mums, you know, Craig's? Mums, yeah. I don't know him, but I, I know his work. <laughs> called me. He played young, he played young Judas? No, he didn't play young Judas. He played the kid who gets his spinning top. Wow. And he also played uh, one of the saints. But anyway, he called me one day and he's like, dude, I just read this book. I read it in one sitting cover to cover. And then I ran around my block five times. Like, it's pretty helpful in terms of uh, dealing with resistance. It's a lot of what we, what makes us not right is resistance, fear, ego. So that's something that might be helpful to some folks. Um, for me, there's two things that get me through. Um, the biggest thing is prayer. And again, I'm not religious. Um, and I don't even know if there's anything out there. But I do believe when I'm writing that it's not coming just from me, that it's coming in collaboration with some, some, the flow of the universe, something. Mm-hmm. And that, and so I pray, and I pray in a, like a Christian Catholic way, but really what it is for me is prayer is literally 
the sublimation of ego. When you pray, you're basically saying, I can't do this. I need help. And so just the act of us sublimating our ego allows, you know, um, allows the spirit to come in, however you want to call it. Um, so I pray. And you know what? Sometimes I pray and pray it doesn't work because I'm not praying right or hard enough or <laughs> sincerely enough. Um, the other thing that helps is, is, is a real deadline, um, although I test those all the time. And then the last thing is, you know, once you're writing your second thing and you get to a place when you're stuck, think about when you wrote the first thing when you were stuck and you were sure you couldn't get past it, but you got past it. My experience is that writing doesn't get any easier. It gets harder. You think, every time I start something new, I'm like, oh, this should be easier. It's harder. But the one thing that I have is I know I've been here before and I got through it. You know, I don't know how many plays I've written. 12, 15, it's like 12, 15 times I got through it. So that, that helps. So prayer, trying to, which is basically putting, trying to take your ego out of it. You know, um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, uh, and, and, and the idea of being of service also helps, you know, mostly all the plays. I've never had a play that wasn't produced by my theater company, including on Broadway, other than Riverside and Crazy. That was a very unique situation. And in that situation, I casted all the company members. I just brought them over to the Atlantic. And... There's a reason for that. It's not just because I'm a loyal member. It's because they help me write because I don't want to let them down because they're my family. It gives me a reason. I'll bail on myself. Right. No problem. I'll let myself down. No problem. But I don't want to let those people down. And so that that helps me too. That's beautiful. So with the, you, you said that Labyrinth Theater Company started. You started as an actor. You, you came together with this collective of other actors to basically create work. Um, tell me about the story of the beginning of the lab and your involvement with them and well, how that came about. The beginning about. Of, of the lab, it was, uh, it was all Latino company. It was called Latino Actors Base. It was a gym for actors. And the reason it was created was they were doing a Broadway production of Death of the Maiden which I forgot the name of the writer, but it's a South American playwright. And they didn't cast any Latinos. Wow. And they interviewed the producer and said, how come you didn't cast any Latinos? And they said, we couldn't find any. So Lab was founded in part to help them find um, Latinos. And it was a gym for actors. And it was amazing, um, Aaron, and, and still very moving to me that, you know, back in 92, 93, there was a lot less roles for people of color than there are now. Not that it's, it's not great now, but it was a lot less. And, um, and so these guys, when I can look, they're basically competing against each other for roles, you know? And I would see them helping each other, running lines together, blah, blah, blah. Seeing people be genuinely happy if someone else got the part. Um, and that spirit was infectious. And, uh, but after a while, we've been working so hard together for a couple of years, just working out, that we were like, all right, let's produce, let's try to produce theater. And that's really how, 
how it started. And and at the time, people didn't know who we were. So say you had a play, and we say, Aaron, we'd really like to do your play. And you're like, I don't know if I want to give it to your company. Or you'd be like, I don't know if I can cast it within your company. Or we have the play, but the director is like, I don't know if I can cast it in your company. So we were pretty quickly like, you know what? I'll write it. You produce it. You'll direct it. Well, you know, we sort of did it like that, do it yourself. And, and, and that became part of the ethos of the company is that you can do whatever you want. I may not be as good of a lighting designer as I am, you know, uh, a, a writer, but I can still um, embrace that skill, especially to help the company. And the more you do, when you're acting, writing, directing, they all inform each other, you Absolutely. know, in a way. You know, you take something from all of it. And so I guess that's what we did. And then, you know, at a certain point, um, they, they brought in non... Uh, Latinos. Actually, Sam Rockwell was an original member, and that's because he was the scene partner of Yul Vasquez who came in. So they had, and, and there's one founder who was white. Um, and then they brought me in. Um, and then eventually we became multicultural, and eventually we became a, uh, a producing theater. But I think that the reason for the success was those early years where there was no agenda. You're just showing up to work out. And, 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 and test yourself, test each other, all these trust exercises, you know, um, that made us say, hey, let's, let's, we're all pursuing this thing out there, let's do it in here too, you know, and that's sort of how it got started, you know, now it's like, now we're old, <laughs> we're bringing the new generation, we have young people coming in now, which is great, we're trying to get them to take over. I love that. So... Um, any directors listening, regional, um, when, what, what are two traits that you would want a director to have when they, when they direct your work? Um, besides what you mentioned with Phil in terms of just his ability to communicate to the yeah. actors to get like, um, I guess a director. That's, number one. So that's the number one is that for a director to be able to understand the material intellectually and emotionally and be able to communicate it to the actors in a way that activate them. In their best and then the second thing and that I got from Phil and then the second thing uh, was obvious it was obvious in Phil's work but I noticed it in someone else's work uh, I went and saw a play that Anna Shapiro directed you know yeah. and, uh, and and it was before she was known at all and 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 I knew a bunch of people in the cast and there was people in the cast that weren't very good actors. There were people that liked to act a lot, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I saw this play. The play was pretty good. I, all my friends who were in it, I thought, like, gave, like, perhaps the best performances I'd ever seen them give. Wow. And the thing that really struck me was, like, everything from the moment I walked into the theater to the moment I walked out was on point and correct. And not drawing attention to the director, but all about the play. And so I would say the second factor is that what I respect and love is a director who takes personal responsibility for everything that happens in the theater from the time the audience sits down to when they leave. And, and that's not everybody. You know, um, you know a, a director, in many ways, you have to be selfless 
to do that job really well. And, you know, I can tell you that Bill Hoffman was not without an ego, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. My man had an ego, you know what I mean? His nickname, we had nicknames, was, his nickname was the chairman. He's awesome, though. He had a nickname because he was a meek, meek mouse. <laughs> but working with, working with, with writers, working with actors, directly, selfless, um, and uh, in service to, you know, the thing. Um, and those are the two things, you know, and if you have those two things, uh, you know, I don't care if people know who you are or if you just walked in off the street, you know, I want to work with you. That's awesome. So you're from Labyrinth Theater, you're writing and eventually you get into TV. You have some TV writing credits as well. The Get Down being a very prominent one. Um, for writers who are starting out in, in you know, the theater, the writing, and there's a transition into TV. Uh, tell me about the moment leading up for you discovering that writing for theater was different for writing from TV, if if at all, and what those differences are. Yeah, that's a really good question and, uh, and something that... Uh, and the answer is, like, it's different and it's the same. Um... I was very resistant to writing for television um, because I didn't want a day job, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't want to work for a living. I wanted to act and write, you know? And, um, but when I, when I did it, uh, I learned so much about writing. My my first job was uh, on a show that, uh, that was David Milch's show. You know, he's the guy who created Deadwood mm-hmm. and um, NYPD Blue. And he's like a kind of a crazy genius. And, I mean, I learned more from him. And I, it was only three months that the show lasted only a few episodes on CBS. I learned more from him about writing and about life than, than anybody, you know. Um, and then I worked on uh, another show and... Uh, what, I, what, what you really learn in writing television is about structure and economy, you know? Um, that, like, if you're writing for a network show, it's basically one hour, and it, that's really 44 minutes. And that you have, uh, you have a teaser, and it's, you know, three to seven minutes, and it has to get the audience's attention prior to the credits. Well, I want to watch this shit. Then you have first act, and then second act at the half hour mark, something has to happen that goes, oh, shit, I wasn't expecting that. And then, you know, third act and fourth act resolving. And uh, so it helped me with a sense of structure. And then also with economy, you know, if there's a scene, say, where, uh, you know, say, say I discover that you've been sleeping with my wife and... Uh, and uh, I challenge you to a duel, you know, <laughs> example, but like, you know, there's a lot of ways to play that scene. There's also a lot of ways to start that scene. Right. You can start the scene where like, we're at a baseball game and we're chilling and uh, I know I'm going to fucking challenge you, you know, right. or you can start with, I challenge you to a duel. And that with, what I learned in terms of economy is that you only have a set amount of time to tell this story. And so 
in TV, especially, start as late into the scene as you can. You know? Uh, uh, um, uh, um, yeah, as late into the scene, meaning, meaning if, it, if it's two detectives and, um, and, and, and they, they're traveling to a murder scene or whatever, you know, um, you know, you can show them in the car and then they can walk and this and this, or you can just cut to murder scene. You see that? She got a red thing, blah, 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 blah. And that economy is, it's really helpful. And then I learned, really learned a lesson when I went back to uh, writing plays because uh, I wrote this play called um, Little Flower of East Orange. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and we thought, I mean, worked on it even on opening night we weren't happy you know it's like it's never happy and it took me a long time to realize like it's it's where i learned like okay you're gonna write a play you have like between 90 minutes and, and two hours to tell a story mm -hmm. actually every minute is valuable every minute that the, the theater goes ass is sitting in the seat you can only sit so long until you start to twitch. Right. Move, you know? So if you're not constantly advancing the story, the theme, in some way, the audience somehow subconsciously knows. And that's when you hear it shifting or this and that. You know, it's just like if you, you know, and this applies to everything, whether it's like, I used to watch Bugs Bunny when I was a kid, you know, it's like 10 minute cartoon. If you look at it, it's all story. It's all story, you know, the story doesn't stop. And, you know, with my plays, yeah, you have monologues, you have this, you have that, but when you when you really break it down, you probably can chase it. No, but this is story. This is advancing, you know, things. So that's where those expressions like kill your darlings, mm -hmm. you know, and like, you know, and cutting and this and that, you start to realize like there's a finite amount of time to tell a story and um, you got to keep it moving. So and, I, and then I started to really learn that in television. Uh, what was your experience like on to get down as a writer? Um, it was uh, it was it was a it was it was it was a mixed experience. Got it. Uh, I uh, I I got a call from Baz Luhrmann or an email from Baz Luhrmann saying that he was creating this show about birth of hip-hop in the South Bronx, um, and uh, he wanted to talk to me about writing it. And first of all, when I got the email, I was like, this is a fake email. Right. You know, I'm like, Who the, how the hell did I get my email? And I went and met with him, and I, you know, he's a great, he's a real artist. Right. And uh, the first thing that struck me about him is like, okay, he's not like a foolish TV guy, he's actually a real artist. And in our talks, I said like, you know, can it be a coming-of-age story? Can it be about friends instead of one guy? Can there be four guys? Can it be about their journey? Yes, 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 yes. And, um, you know, it was a difficult experience because, you know, as you know, it took us like three years to produce essentially one season. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. And the other thing I realized, and I love Baz, like, it's not a knock on Baz, but when you go into a and it, uh, a job, and you're partnered with somebody who's more famous than you, you know, mm -hmm. is worth more to the agency and the studio than you are. Right. 
corporate interest. It's not really a partnership. Right. So, I worked my ass off for three years. Much of what I wrote showed up on the screen, but others didn't. And, um, And it was really hard. You know, it was really hard. Even, like, you know, we hired a great staff. Um, Nelson George, Seth, Seth uh, Rosenfeld, uh, Aaron Rasan Thomas, who, who, who runs SWAT, who actually written a couple of really great articles lately, if you Google him, mm-hmm. um, on representation in, 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 uh, in, in the media and also about cops and stuff. And and all those those people were veterans. And I remember one time Seth calling me and saying, like, dude, I have never cried so much on a job. It was, it was just hard. Yeah. But, you know, what I'm very, very, very proud of is that we created a show where the four leads were all young people of color. Basically, most of them not well-known. Exactly. Um, and now that's more common, but even then it wasn't. Um, and we had the older actors in the supporting roles, and we gave them the opportunity to shine, and, and, and I think they they really did. And I'm grateful that that they're all still working, but like, if you really think about it, like that show should have continued. Yeah. It should have had more seasons. I mean, we had... I was surprised that it didn't, man. Well, it didn't because, uh, you know, a lot of money was spent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't spend it but a lot of money was spent. And I felt like, at the time, it was irresponsible to have that opportunity and not to maximize it. You know, thank God those kids are all working, and I think the show served its purpose, and I know a lot of people like it, like a, there's a group of people who really like it. But it was hard, man. And TV, ultimately, there's people that love TV and people that I love who love working in TV. I like the theater. Yeah. You know, well, um, I, I, I was doing Between Riverside and Crazy at the same time as the Get Down, and we were in L.A. at that time. And in L.A., the writer's room, you know, you pick out what chair you want, you know, and from a catalog of all these expensive chairs. Ordering lunch is like, it's like, a, it's like a, you know, you like 12 menus, and what do you want? This, you know, it's ridiculous. And then I fly to New York, for the read-through of Riverside, and we're all sitting at folding tables, and everyone's happy because there's some food and water. Exactly. And I'm, like, I'm sorry, like, I'm not averse to money, I'm not averse to good food, but that's home. Right. You know, that was home, so. And, but I love TV, I love to watch TV, I'll do TV again, hopefully. But uh, it was hard, man. It, the bigger, the more money there is, the less control. You, you, you end up having, and even Baz had to battle the powers that be, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a struggle. Um, as an actor, I've watched some interviews with you talking about Phil and this conversation that you've had with him about um, something that really impacted your own acting and writing. Can you describe the conversation that you had with him about actions and acting and, and how that's impacted your own personal acting as well as writing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, that was, uh, I was directing a, like, a off-off production of, um, Danny Deep and Sea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were at our summer retreat, and I said to Phil, I was like, 
I was a little embarrassed because I didn't know shit, you know, like, and I was like, Phil, man, can you explain to me what actions are? Like, I, I, I know in my head, but I don't really understand. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, hold on, let me get my script. And he came back with this film script that he was working on at the time. And it wasn't like the master, you know, like, it wasn't like, it was, I think it was Leap of Faith, you know? Yeah, like yeah. A comedy, you know, like, and, uh, and the first thing I noticed was, like, you literally could not see where the type ended and his writing began. Wow. Every, all, every page was filled with notes, you know? And then, you know, he explained to me the action with the verb, what are you doing in the moment, you know? Um, how are you trying to affect the other person? Everything's about affecting the other person. Um, and, you know, the verbs you choose. And, and, and you know, he, he, you know, communicated to me. Eventually I went to acting school and got to understand it more. But, like, as much as his explanation of actions helped me, equal to that was just seeing that script and seeing all those notes. And this is like a stupid comedy. Right. You know? And that's when I realized, yeah, you're gifted. Yeah. But you work your ass off. And that is the truth. Like, you know, um, he was very, very talented. He had a gift. He worked his ass off. And by and large, in my experience, most of the best actors I know it's that. They have talent, but they work their ass off. And I remember reading about, what was that period, I think, in the 50s in London when there was, like, Peter O'Toole and Alec Guinness and, uh, and uh, this other dude. It was this a group of young actors at the time that were, like, the next generation after Olivier or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they were known for, like, carousing and drinking and, like... Uh, you know, supposedly not taking it seriously, even being drunk or like in the pub in between scenes and going on the stage. And somehow one day in a library, I found a book that was written by Peter O'Toole's ex-wife. Mm -hmm. And I started reading the book and she said, the thing about Peter O'Toole is that everybody thinks like he just, he just winged it, you know, and that he was drunk and this and blah, blah. But what they didn't know is that when he came home at night, he started working on the script every day, you know, all night long, all day, until he got to theater and did all that work so that when he got into London, he could act like, you know, oh, it's just a blah, 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 oh, I have a part, but he really worked his ass off. And, and that's true. I mean, by and large, I think successful people work their ass off. Um, you know, Chris Rock was in Motherfucker with the Hat, and I you know, he had never acted in a play before and not known particularly as a dramatic actor, even though the role has comedy, too. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, after, like, a couple of days with Chris, I was like, oh, I know why you've had a 30-year career. I mean, that guy's been around, like, you a know, since he the Eddie Murphy movie. I know why you've had a 30-year career. Because you work your ass off. You're humble. You work your ass off, and you treat people right, you know? That's beautiful. Um, yeah, and that's something to aspire to. We always, we're always going for that. We don't always hit it, you know, we're human, but that's a recipe for success, you know? So this next question, you might have answered it with this prior answer, but it seems to me like the tangible 
things that you look for in acting besides like kind of the talent that will shine your talent will shine based on the work that you do so the tangible aspect that an actor can work on is just first being a good human treating people right and and serving the work the piece um the community around you and working hard are there are there intangibles like that that gift that you said some people are just gifted there's a god-given gift can that be developed can you be an ungifted actor and become a good actor, or is, is it not? You know, that's a really good question. I think that there are some things that can't be taught or developed, but there's enough that can that, that I think the answer is yes. Number one, you can be a technically proficient actor. You know, I grew up in the Meisner technique, which is about listening and responding playing your actions, making the other person more important. That you, and that if you go on that stage and you know what you're saying and why you're saying it with a purpose, you will communicate the story and you will be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, Phil used to say to the, to the actors, you know, you may get to that moment and you may cry, you may not cry. But if you know why you're saying what you're saying and it's all in service of affecting the other person, you will be doing it. You will be telling the story. So you can be technically proficient if you're disciplined. And then the second thing that's a bit of intangible, but it's like to be fearless. That's not something that, I mean, yeah, maybe someone could be gifted with fearlessness, but uh, just to give you an example, I saw a production of uh, Hamlet um, years ago with like a really famous actor who's also really gifted at speaking the verse. Mm-hmm. But like I saw the play and I was like, oh, this is a risk-free Hamlet. Like never for one moment did I feel like he was putting himself on the line or actually really taking the truth or risking anything. Right. And then they did Hamlet in the park a few years ago with... Um, I wish I could have seen that one. I heard, I heard Michael, that. Michael Stubart. Yeah. who's in the company and I saw it like five times um, partially because I never really studied and um, and so I like to see the plays just to educate myself mm-hmm. but I saw it five times because I think if Michael was here he would tell you like his Hamlet wasn't perfect but you want to talk about putting your ass on the line going for it you know um, being fearless um, and that is everything. I, I saw uh, Raul Julia uh, do a fellow with Chris Rockett as Yago in the park. And, you know, Raul probably wouldn't be playing with Othello today. But, like, again, it wasn't perfect. But his enthusiasm, his willingness his, to risk everything in the moment, man, if you do that, it's compelling. we can work on the other stuff. If you have a natural inclination to be safe and withhold, you can't do too much with that. Right. But if you are willing to go out there, we can work on the other stuff. You know, you can learn, you know, these other things. But that spirit is, uh, to me, something that prize a lot. What would you say your favorite word is? 
I knew I, I felt like that was gonna be your favorite word. Because <laughs> it's like a verb, it's an adjective, it's an adverb. You know, it can be it can be everything. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And what what's your least favorite word? I got. I, it, it has to be Trump. Love that. Um, what book or play have you gifted the most in this past year to your friends, to your community? year but like traditionally I think the play I know the plays that I mo- the books that I most give is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Gibran. Um Letters to a Young Poet by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke and then uh, Franny and Zooey by J.D. Salinger I haven't heard like that I'm last one I'm a big fan of Catching the Ride but Franny and Zooey is is really meaningful book to me um, halfway bitches go straight to heaven. Won the Outer Critics Circle awards, and what would you say the genesis of creating that piece would be for you? Um, it, it didn't win the Outer Critics. It was nominated, but it didn't win. The drunk. Oh, I thought. Okay, I thought you. Okay. If you want to, if you want to dub me the winner, I'll take it. But oh, yeah. Um, I even, <laughs> yeah. No, we, we were nominated. The, you know, the genesis of that play is very um, simple. Is mm-hmm. that at our at our summer retreat? Uh, I I was presenting something else and I had a little extra time so I, I wrote like the first five pages of the play just based on the idea of like man we got a lot of talented women in this company like someone should write something that lets them shine and then I put it away and then the real reason I wrote the play was Lab was in trouble you know um, you know we lost our home we lost our infrastructure, our money, we lost everything. And we've been fighting to try to stay alive. Um, and uh, and John Ortiz called me and he's like, you know, can you write something for us? You know, we have this slot at the Cherry Lane in the second space and it'll just be like a workshop but we get a grant. But if you don't write it, we don't get the grant, blah, blah, blah. It ended up being at the Atlantic with Neil. Um, but it started from I'm writing the play because I, I I want the company to be alive and live. And John had never directed before. I asked him to direct, and he's like, he's like, I never directed. I was like, yeah, well, if I have to do this shit, you're gonna do it with me. And um, and uh, that's how it started. And the things that started to inform it. I mean, I have some background doing arts education, and social work, a long time ago, but um. There, there's a um, a shelter on the corner from my house, and um, and I see the folks all the time because I'll be walking my dog right it's right by the park, and you know there's hours in the shelter where you can't be there; you have to be outside, so mm-hmm. hang on the benches. And and I just noticed how neighbors in my neighborhood how they reacted to those folks, mm-hmm. and then also to how those folks reacted to the neighbors because of feeling uncomfortable, you know, mm-hmm. and um, once in a while I would talk to somebody, you know, sit on the bench, have a cigarette, whatever. I was very conscious of not wanting to, like, get up in anyone's business, but, uh, um, yeah, that's how it started, and, and the sort of big moment was a day where, uh, this spot where I go walk the dog and fight his monument, 
and um, and there's there's a couple of homeless people that are there that live there, and you know I know them by name. It's like paying a toll every time I go there. I mean, they give them money, <laughs> cigarettes, whatever. Um, but they're cool, you know, they're people. Right. And uh, one morning I was walking the dog, and he was going to do his business somewhere, and all of a sudden this lady started screaming at me because they were planting uh, flowers, you know, and and she just went off on me and. I'm used to it, like, usually in those situations, it's really easy, like, I can be just, like, walk away, but then sometimes you, you react. Right. Um, and uh, this was an instance where I reacted, you know, and, 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 and she was like, because the dog was taking a shit in this little spot, she's like, don't you care about making the neighborhood beautiful? Aren't you proud of your neighborhood? And I was like, I don't give a fuck about making my neighborhood fucking beautiful. It's like, if you want something beautiful, you want to do something make fucking neighborhood crowd, look right over here. I mean, they're literally right there on right. the bench. Why don't you do something to help these guys instead of planting flowers that are going to be gone in six weeks? Right. You know, um, that was maybe a little unfair, but that's how I felt. And um, and, and I started, and it, and it reinforced this idea that people care, sometimes care more about things than they care about people. And that, um, you know, and it's not even all because we're not. It's not all like people that are, are bad. It's also like, you know, even the best person who does the most shit. It's like I understand that you can't be contemplating painful things twenty four hours a day. You know, but uh, these people are were being ignored. And they're people, and uh, and that motivated me with the writing. And um, yeah, and it just sort of developed from there. And uh, it was difficult, uh, but it was a great experience. And the other thing that was great about it was, you know, it was mostly all lab members. And I cast people from all experience levels, from very experienced to would never get cast in a play otherwise. And everybody really rose the occasion. It's awesome. I ask all my guests this. Um, we're winding down. Uh, when you think of the world, the word creative, who is the first artist that comes to mind for you and why? You know, um, I, I think about Phil, but also uh, I had an opportunity when I was younger to go to Paris, and I'm not like a, an art guy, but I was with a woman that was really into that stuff, and she took me to this Picasso museum that was in his house, mm -hmm. and so you go in his house, and it has, like, all his work from his beginning period to the end, and you see all of it, and, and, um, and, and in his lifetime, he created, like, I think 40 to 50,000 pieces of art, wow. and he has this quote where he says, uh, Inspiration exists, but it must find you working. And um, by all accounts, like Picasso was kind of like a shitbag of a person. Right. You know, apparently he was not a good guy. Right. Um, but it's certainly he was creative. Um, uh, yeah, that and also uh, the sculptor guy Rodin. We mm. went to the Rodin Museum. And I was like, you know, believe me, like, it's, it's not my thing. Um, but she took me there. He started looking at stuff and getting some sense of 
how massive the undertaking to take a big, huge bowl of, of uh, granite and turn it into something that can actually move a human from looking at it. Like, that's creative, too. So, yeah. Uh, how can people connect with you? Um, your Twitter, social media handles, however you want, like, aspiring writers or um, yeah, just people yeah. want to connect. Twitter, um, Twitter Facebook. Um, if you have my email. I'm horrible at, at reading people's scripts. So, like, I would say, like, you can send me a script, but I apologize it may never get written. But if you or any of your immediate people want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me through my email. Dope. And everything else, yeah, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Cool. We'll come by uh, the monument on 88th and Riverside. I'm usually there with my dog a couple times a day. Cool. Steven Navigators, uh, thank you. I honor your time. I respect you being here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Aaron.